whole philosophy of medicine has not dynamically changed enough to understand that that really isn't what our job is. Our job yeah. is to help people heal in their own way. And they're the only ones who know how that is. And the problem is that we've told them they don't know nothing. They have to get it all out of the TV or a doctor said or something. Like I told my son, contact the physician within that patient and then you work with that connection because it's not the modality that does the healing. It's the love with which it's done that does the healing. Welcome to This Is Aging, a podcast on a mission to explore the upside of getting older. We're your hosts, Dana Schultz and Melissa Reeves, two friends approaching midlife who are fed up with anti-aging culture and refuse to believe that life is all downhill after 40. We believe life can get better with age and we're here with the stories to prove it. Join us and our inspiring guests as we flip the aging narrative on its head and trade fear for curiosity and celebration. What could we say about this episode other than it's incredibly special? We spoke with our first centenarian, hopefully not our last, Dr. Gladys McGarry. And after we got off the phone with her, we just cried because we were so overwhelmed by the potency of the conversation and the fact that she would spend an hour of her precious time with us. Yeah. And as she described at the end of the episode, it was a love fest. We experienced so much joy and love talking with her. I actually had cried in the morning before the episode as I was finishing her book. And then like Dana said, we just sat and had a proper cry over the internet afterwards. This conversation is just so full of joy and wisdom. And the stories that she told are incredible. It's just a a super interesting life that she's lived and she shares all about it in the episode and of course in the book, which we loved as well. And I personally hope that people are able to sit with the wisdom in this episode and also walk away from the conversation feeling inspired and hopeful about aging because she's 102 and she has a 10-year plan and she has no plans of slowing down. Today's episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, which is a brand that Dana and I have both used and loved for a number of years. They offer a whole range of products that contain adaptogenic mushrooms. They have a really lovely protein powder that is plant-based. They've got a variety of different drink mixes like cacao and coffee creamers. They also have a mushroom-based, I mean, it, it's real coffee, but it has mushrooms added to it. And I personally don't drink coffee. I've actually never had a cup of coffee in my life. But I hear from the people that do like coffee that it is good. <laughs> coffee or, or Four Sigmatic? <laughs> uh, coffee. Four Sigmatic yeah, coffee specifically. Yeah. Yeah. No, they just, they make incredible products. People have probably been aware of them. They've been around for more than 10 years and I've dabbled in a lot of their products. But the thing I'm most into right now is their peanut butter protein powder, which has an entire serving of mushrooms and just really high quality ingredients, which they've never wavered from over the course of their incredible growth. So can't recommend Four Sigmatic products enough. And you can go to our website, and any of the other places that we're sharing content about this episode, and you'll find a link that you can use to go and buy anything you would like from Four Sigmatic, and you can use our code, This is Aging 10 to get 10% off your order. We hope you guys try a new product that you fall in love with, and thanks so much for supporting the show and listening along. 
We have an immensely special guest today, Dr. Gladys McGarry, who is a holistic MD and the co-founder of the American Holistic Medical Association. She is 102 years old. Over the past 60 years, she's pioneered a new way of thinking about disease and health and has transformed the way we imagine healthcare and self-care around the world. Um, Dr. Gladys began her medical practice at a time when women could not even own their own bank accounts, which is pretty staggering <laughs> to think about. Yeah. And then recently she authored an incredible book called The Life Well Lived, a 102-year-old doctor's uh, six secrets to health and happiness, which we can't recommend enough. And we are so grateful to have you here on the show with us, Dr. Gladys. Thank you. Can we start by just reflecting on the fact that you've lived for over a century, and that is an incredible length of time. And my mind just kind of struggles to wrap my mind around how it must have felt to be alive for over 100 years and experience so much change in the world. And I'm just curious what that experience has been like for you and if you had any trouble um, accepting change because there's been so much change that's uh, taken place in the last hundred years. <laughs> no, it's actually, it's awesome. And I just, you know, people have made assist, the word assisted living as a really bad word. You, you, mm. You're getting into that kind of thing. When you think about it, we started assisted living when we got pregnant. The ultimate in assisted living is a pregnancy. So when our life starts on this dimension, we're in the process of assisted living. So when we get at to be 100 years old, we're still needing the same kind of thing that we needed when we took our first breath, was help from somebody else. Hmm. We need to accept that as part of the joy of being connected with each other. And I've had the privilege of knowing amazing people, loving great people, liking some, not liking some as much, <laughs> and, you know, just riding life each moment. And when, when people ask me, which is the most important moment of my life, my answer is this one, wow. this moment right now. So I, I think... We need to reclaim who we are. And when we start doing that and finding out more about ourselves and the things that are important to us and sharing that with each other, it's like a starving person who we reach out to and help them with it because that helps us. Mm -hmm. it's, we don't do well if we get to be feeling really lonely. And the way to help that is to look for someone else who's lonely. You know, mm. we're, we, we have the same emotions, we have the same desires, we have the same uh, needs. We eat and we drink water and we sleep and, and those things are, we share all of these human things and it's an awesome time to be alive no matter when or where. And some of it that. is painful as all get out, but it's got yes. its own lesson. Yeah. 
It reminds me of the, have you ever practiced yoga or studied yogic philosophy? Because there seems to be a lot of parallels between your philosophies of life. Of course. Yes. I just love, I love learning that yoga means union and it's really about connecting or recognizing that I am part of the whole and which is exactly what you were just touching on is recognizing how we're all interconnected and it's such a powerful way to, to live because it really puts everything in perspective. So I'm excited. And, and, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, bringing that concept up to date, in my words, it's kind of like a huge jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. I mean, this life is. And each one of us is a piece in that puzzle. And there isn't anyone else that can take that place. I've tried putting other pieces in the jigsaw puzzle and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And if you have a thousand-piece puzzle and you lose one piece, you drive yourself crazy trying to find that one piece. It's that important to us that we recognize that we as individuals are who we are, and there's no one else that can take that place. And that's a pretty awesome concept, no matter how old we are. Yeah, that's really beautiful and a a great way to to reflect on your whole life as as long as it has been coming back to Dana's question of of what it has been like to see so much change and so many things happen and just to almost come back to your own place in it all as small right. or as big as that may be yeah <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about what drew you to your work in medicine i know you had a very unique upbringing and and we'd love to hear a little bit more about the backstory of what brought you to the work that you began so long ago. I would love to talk about that because my parents were awesome people. Uh, Every parent is an awesome person. But my mother and dad became osteopathic physicians taught by A.T. Still, who started the osteopathic concept. And my mother graduated in 1913 and my dad in 1911 from the osteopathic school so they came and my mother there was there were you know how many women were in medicine they were in nursing but they weren't in the field of medicine they weren't Mm. doctors Mm. in fact my parents went out to india as medical missionaries but my mother went out as part of my dad's passport like his she was part of his luggage (laughs) (laughs) you know he had his license she had hers and they were right side by side but she was not a a person who was recognized as that so they went Mm -hmm. out to India but they went out with a outreach to the people in North India in the jungles of North India so I my early childhood was in the tents in the jungles of North India. And uh, I have a, a tiger skin on my wall, which is my dad taught, because not because he was out doing hunting for the, for the joy of it, but because this tigress was ta- attacking the villagers. Hmm. And they had no way of protecting themselves. So he had a gun, and he could go out and do that. So it was it was a mixed uh, process, 
you know, we were killing in order that people could live. And mm-hmm. uh, I have a leopard on the on the shelf here in my living room, and I shot that one because when I was fifteen, because uh, same thing. She was a marauding a village, but the way in which my parents treated these people who really were the poorest of the poor and the children that were my age and playing around with me would rub my arms trying to get my color right. You know, mm-hmm. it should be brown. It wasn't supposed to be white. She tried to, they were trying to get the white off. Well, you know, that changes your perspective about life somehow. And yeah. so I feel very blessed to have had that kind of a of assisted living when I came into this world. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, you talk a lot in your book about how much you really respected your parents and the path that they took and it made such an impact in the world. And I remember you talking about there being a moment where you realized that you wanted to have that same path. And I would love to hear that story just really briefly, if you're willing to share it. Yeah. <laughs> we were in the tents in in the jungle, and my dad and my older brothers went on a, a hunt. So my mother and my younger brother and my sister and I were there in the tent, and the the workers of the camp were there. But that was, you know, we were, there was no protection. We were just out there in the jungle. And except for our little camp compound. And I loved that. I loved working with my mother and helping her because I could, I was about nine years old and there were things I could do. And all of a sudden, here comes a mahout, a um, elephant, not a herder, but he, he worked with elephants. And he came walking into the camp, came up to my mother with the elephant beside him and uh, said to my mother, this is the Maharaja's favorite elephant. And it's it hurt its foot out in the jungle when we were on a hunt. And uh, we can't do it. And it's not getting well. And so my mother laughed, and she says, well, you know, I don't treat elephants. <laughs> and the, the, the uh, Mahat said, you're a doctor? And she says, oh, yes, okay, I treat elephants. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I meant was yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. And so she started patting the elephant's leg. Now, my mother was five foot one. So this little tiny woman standing by this huge <laughs> leg, and she's talking to him like she talked to all of her patients, you know. I'll see what I can do, and we'll see. If this hurts, I'm sorry about that, but I'll try to get, you know. And she's just talking to the elephant, and the elephant isn't batting an eye. It's standing there just as quietly as anything. And <clears throat> so then she asks me to go in into the tent and the medicine tent and find the the syringe and the potassium permanganate and fix it up and then a forceps and I knew she what she was talking about so I did that all this time she's 
patting the elephant and feeling around just like she did with any patient that she'd been working with. And when I brought the forceps, she reached in the pad of the elephant's foot and she's moving around with that. And she finds a piece of, of bamboo that was about six inches long that had stuck mm-hmm. itself in, in the foot. And so of course it couldn't heal. So she moved and all the time she's saying to the elephant, now this may hurt a little bit, but it'll, I'll stop and I'll do this and da-da-da-da-da. So she's telling him what she's doing. And she moves that foot, that piece of wood around until she's able to get it out. And then I hand her the syringe that I've got filled with potassium permanganate solutions. And she rinses out the whole area and then puts some uh, ointment on it and explains to the Mahout how he should take care of that and and uh, so on and so forth. And all this time, my brother and my sister and I are standing around watching it. And, and when she's finished, uh, she pats the elephant on the snout and she said, now you can go. And um, so then the Mahout comes around and the elephant picks my sister up first because she was the oldest. I guess somehow the elephant knew that. <laughs> <laughs> and put her on the, his back. And then he picked me up and put me on his back and my brother. Then we, uh, the little Indian kids were running all around and the elephant and the Mahout start down to the Ganges River. Our tent was right on the edge of the Ganges River. And um, the elephant walked into it and he gets water in his snout and he squirts us like, and we know we didn't have running showers. So this was just an amazing thing. And we happily doing that. And the little Indian kids are playing around. And this went on until, I don't know, how, finally the Mahout gets us down and we go back to the camp. And the next day, for sure enough, bright and early, we're at the tent and working with the people who were beginning to come in. And here comes the elephant, walked right through the a group of patients, right over to where my mother was, put his snout around my mother and lifted her up from the mm-hmm. ground. And he swinged her off like this. And she's laughing and she's saying, now be a good boy and put me down. I have work to do. <laughs> so she pats him on the nose and the elephant puts her down. And this went on for a week that we were there in the camp. For me, that was a, a an awakening process in which I realized how all living creatures are connected. Mm-hmm. And our, our pain is the same. Our languages are different. I don't know what language the elephant talks, but I do know that the elephant understood love and caring. Mm-hmm. And so it's that essence of what healing is all about and that love is the greatest healing of all. I'm so um, inspired by the overall themes in the book and always coming back to mindset and love as these striving forces of a life well lived and also taking care of ourselves and, and remaining healthy and I'm curious if you can speak a little bit, a little bit about how your 
journey toward medicine included the obstacle of overcoming or learning how to work with rather your dyslexia, because it seems like some people maybe doubted your ability to make it to where you've you've come because of this uh, disadvantage that you had. And I find I found that to be a very inspiring part of the book. So I'm just curious if you could speak a little bit about how you worked with that disadvantage to your advantage. Well, <clears throat> the interesting thing about that was, that, well, there were a bunch of things, but one of the things, <clears throat> when we started the American Holistic Medical Association, there were six, 10 of us doctors sitting around a table discussing, I don't know what, but we finally realized that of the 10 of us, severe, six of us were severely dyslexic. Wow. And we looked at each other and we said, we must have, because I had to learn how to read because I had I couldn't read. The numbers, and they just floated all over the page. And we looked at each other and we said, how did you learn to read? And none of us knew how we mm-hmm. learned to read. Mm-hmm. We just knew that in order to do what we in, uh, intended to do, and become physicians, we'd better learn how to read. And mm-hmm. so I still don't know. But thats <laughs> it, it's something that is so important. Right now, my eyesight is so poor that I can't read. I, I'm using uh, these audio books and so on. Mm-hmm. But the things that I have found is that maybe my eyesight has gotten poor but my insight is better. I can understand things about life and things that I didn't understand before because I'm not, probably because I'm not distracted by other things outside. But this whole business of having to flunk first grade twice, you know, I had to repeat first grade. The teacher thought I was a dumbbell. She called me a dumbbell. Mm-hmm. Other students called me the same. And I fought them, you know. I mean, I, my brother showed me how to do a good punch, and <laughs> I, so in Can you school, show us? I was, I was, <laughs> yeah. I got, you know, you get, I thought. Well, he teased me, and he said, you "Run up to somebody and poke your elbow in them, and then pull this down." Because he just <laughs> a karate chop. <laughs> anyway, we he we practiced and. But I, you know, I was, I guess I'm about 10 years old one morning when I woke up and because I had, you know, by now I'd gone through some other things too, but I wasn't the class dummies so much. But I woke up and I said to myself, Gladys, there's something wrong in this world. You don't have a friend. You don't have one friend, not mm-hmm. one that you really that really likes you. And that's because you're, you can, because you're a fighter. Who do you know that doesn't fight all the time and has a lot of friends? And it was my mother. My mother had the ability to take things that were painful or something and put some concept that would just turn it around and make something uh, acceptable about it. It's like, a week before she died, we were sitting on my back porch, and my dad and my mother and I, 
and she was uh, 89, and uh, she says, my dad, look at that petunia bush. It's got each uh, at least 400 blossoms on it. And my dad says to her, oh, Beth, it doesn't have more than 40. She says, what's another zero? I mean, <laughs> this is the kind of life mm. that she taught me to re, re actually work with in order to understand the things that were th there to do. So what was your question that I got? Uh, learning, to... learning how to overcome uh, okay. learning, learning disabilities. Uh, mm -hmm. Right. So the, so the first two years were just <laughs> really, really hard. But my third grade teacher was Miss, Miss Begay, and she did something that she saw something in me that the other teacher had not seen. And so I still couldn't read, but she saw that I, I could talk because I could talk and I could organize. I could do things like that. So she appointed me class governor. And so as class governor, I was able to take the things that we as third grade people do, did to the audience of the whole school. And so it was a whole different life extension, including the fact that at one point we had a um, play that we presented to the or to the whole student body, and I it was the frog jumped over the pool. Well, I was appointed the frog because, for, <laughs> first of all, I was bigger than the other kids because I'd had to repeat first grade. So my mother made me a green frog suit dyed it green, and I was really proud of this. And so I walk out onto the stage in front of the whole student body, proud of the fact that I'm the frog now, and I can jump over the pool because I can do it, you know. But as I look out onto the audience, I saw my two older brothers in the, on the front row of the audience, and it threw me off my step just enough that instead of jumping over the pond, I landed in it. <laughs> so I'm standing in that pond. The suit is fading because my mother didn't waste money, you know. My, so the green is fading into the water. I'm crying. I don't know what to do. I can't move. I'm a total failure. Life is over. You know, all of this is going through my head. And my brothers in the audience are cracking up laughing. They're just, they're having a great time. So the teacher finally comes up and takes me by the hand, gets me out of the pond, and we walk out. So at dinner that night, we're sitting at the table, and my brothers are telling me this, telling the family about what happened and what I looked like and all. I'm giving them the, the devil's eye, and they're not paying any attention to me. And, and finally, my mother says, all right, boys, now, you've had your fun. What can we as a family do to help Gladys so that if this ever happens to her again, she will have a, she will be able to have people laughing with her, not at her. And I don't know what we came up with as a family, but that has stood me in good stead all my life. Yeah. There have been, I still have the dyslexia. I still have the basic... Uh, 
incoordination. I trip and I fall. Well, so I've tripped and fallen. I've tripped and fallen and walked up to the podium and picked myself up, walked up to the podium and said to the audience, well, I must be some kind of a drama queen or something like that. I get the audience in my hand and uh, and then I can say what I need to say. But it's it's been the learning lesson time after time after time after time and still learning them you know there's so much to learn the beautiful thing is that as we age and work through things it's sort of like the lenses through which we look at life have different aspects so that we can see things about what happened in our life at one time and and how that was a lesson, a huge lesson, or that was just a little lesson, but it was important. Or, yeah. you know, everything in life is a lesson if we take it as such. If it, we take it as punishment and get stuck with it, we've got problems. It's sort of like, you know, looking over your left shoulder at what's going on back there and getting stuck, your neck will get stiff. You know, you'll mm-hmm. have be walking around with a stiff neck. If you could get your neck out of that position and start looking towards the light, it's, a to- it's the same world. But here you are looking at what you choose to look at. Which is so amazing. And as you probably are aware, this podcast is about aging. And obviously, we are a lot younger than you are. And a lot of our listeners will be a lot long, a lot younger than you are. And really, our hope is to help people have something to look forward to, to not see and believe that aging and getting older is just this downhill experience where everything in life is going to get worse and worse. We obviously also don't want to sugarcoat it and make it sound like there aren't challenges and there aren't hardships along the way. But in having the opportunity to speak with you, it feels like there's so much hope in your story and in the way you've lived your life. And both in your medical career, as well as your life in general, it sounds like you really focus on this idea of life force and really finding what makes you tick, what you love to do, what you are, what you love to be about. And moving your energy in that direction. Can you talk about that philosophy and how thinking again of these younger listeners who are looking at the decades to come and wondering how to live life in the way that you're describing, how can we think about this life force, this aspect of ourselves? My oldest son is a retired uh, orthopedic surgeon. And so when he had... Excuse me. When he had completed his training, he came through Phoenix and he was going down to Del Rio, Texas to start his practice. And he said to me, Mom, I'm real scared. He said, I'm going into the world. I'm going to have people's lives in my hands. He said, I don't know if I can handle that. And I said to him, well, Carl, if you think you're the one that does the healing, You have a right to be scared, but you have the opportunity to use the training of of surgery 
that is so awesome. When when we need that kind of surgery, that's what we need. We don't need uh, something else. We, you have been trained to do this to help people, and now you can take that training, help the people, and then as you do that with love, contact the physician within that patient, which is the physician that really does the healing. Mm. As you reach out to that healing ability within that patient, healing will happen. Now, it may not always be the kind of way you're looking for it to happen. It may be that that patient has some kind of a process that they have to work with all their life, sort of like my dyslexia. But mm. there's, and Franklin Roosevelt, he had pain all his life, and yet he became president. In other words, it's not the fact that, that, that <clears throat> these issues happen to us, but if it's pa- part of our life pattern and we c- can find somebody who can work with us as we allow ourselves to be healed as much as our body is going to let us be healed and then be grateful for that and be able to use it in a way that makes life a wow. It's like, when uh, do you mind if I start telling stories? Please do. Yes, we want to hear every story. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of fun, you know. Us girls can talk about things. Anyway, um, I came on my 99th birthday, and I was in in the grocery store afterwards, and I was coming out with my things in my basket. I was still driving, and and the elderly gentleman comes up, and he says to me, oh, may I help you? And I said, no, no, I can do this myself. And he said, he pulls himself up straight, and he says, well, I'm 86. And somehow that pushed a button in me, and I turned around and looked at it. And I said, and I'm 99. And I picked my things up, and I marched into the car, and I sat down, and I said, you nasty old woman. <laughs> he was just trying to be nice. And look what you did. The poor guys in the grocery store, you should go in and apologize. And then I thought, no way. This is a, so funny. It's a comedy scene. I said to myself, you are standing in a, a kindergarten yard and you're fighting with some guy because you're bigger than him. And I got to laughing and I said, if I go in there, I have to recreate this whole thing with him. He probably forget and call me a nasty old lady. That's all right. You know, but... It was the, the whole recreating a whole another dimension of something that was really um, a way in which I had learned to take these things that I've done, which I'm ashamed of, but they don't have to be so traumatic if we could just put them in another context and yeah. allow them to do what they can do. Because I'm sure it didn't hurt that older man. I'm sure he felt really good about having doing what he did, and that I was a nasty old lady, and he could go about his business. 
You'll go help somebody else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It seems like that it ties into your philosophy uh, of living medicine, which defines your approach as a doctor, which is very opposite to uh, traditional Western medicine as we know it, which is more of a isolate the illness and treat the illness in an almost a war against the illness. And I loved how you really, you almost approach any ailment that someone's having in their body or difficulty in their life as not why is this happening to me, but why is this happening for me? What can I learn from it? And right. it's what I took away from your book is it's really just a manual to holistically heal yourself and to, to find your purpose. And I'm curious if you learned that philosophy from your parents or the the living medicine philosophy, or was that something that you found on your own? Well, I, I you know, I started with my parents, but in medical school, <laughs> the dean sent me to the psychiatrist twice because I was asking questions and saying things that made, that she was sure I did not understand what medicine was about, and I didn't mm -hmm. because it was it was during World War Two. Everything that we were taught was about killing diseases and eliminating pain, and and I knew that there were times when there was a disease there that you couldn't kill. And there was pain there that you couldn't eradicate. It was just part of what a person had in their life. Like, I have this wonderful friend and patient who has all her life she's had pain. I mean, she's had really severe pain. But she's a painter. And she is, so she does, she, if, when her pain starts, she grabs her paints and she starts painting. She'll paint her purse. She'll paint her shoes. She'll paint a, a piece of cloth and then make a dress out of it. She paints her walls. Mm -hmm. She calls it her... When she gets to the point where she gets the ting out of painting, she could go back to her work. Now, it was her work of figuring out how she was going to deal with this. Now, she has a kind of pain that can, it has to do with her muscle structure and so on. So it's it's been a constant thing all her life. But she's awesome. She does everything that she wants to do. And if there's pain there, she doesn't get upset about the pain. She just grabs her paints and goes about painting until she gets the tig. In other words, she's able to look to it life through lenses that are different from the way they can be and the way she, uh, you know, it's, it's some other way of allowing herself to continue her life in a way that is joyful and helpful. I feel like so many people are afraid of getting older because they're afraid to be in pain, right? To have some kind of chronic illness or difficulty that makes it hard to enjoy their lives. And that fear indicates that we don't believe what you're describing is possible. We don't believe that we could be in pain and also find joy and also live a meaningful and purposeful life. We feel and are afraid that having those circumstances would, would render us incapable of having a meaningful, joyful life. So it, it's really powerful to hear you talk about it. If you have a cut on your arm 
and uh, there's a scab that forms, and you spend your time picking at that scab, it's never going to heal. But if you do the stuff that you need to do about letting that heal, it will heal in its own form, and the pain can be eased off, and you can look back years later at your arm and say, oh, yeah, I know what that is. But you don't have the pain in it. You see, it's what you put your focus on. If your focus is on the pain, it stays. It, it doesn't go away because it, it, it likes that focus. But if you can understand that that's not what you want to do, I, like when I was, uh, you know, the, the fighter in the class, I was fighting this whole issue uh, of how I was being picked on and all of that. And uh, and you can keep on doing that. And I did for a long time. But when I realized that I wasn't having any fun, <laughs> I was just, you know, making it harder for myself. I changed. But it's, you know, I, I, I don't have the complete answer. There are times when it stirs up again and the eyes offered me to carry my uh, like luggage into the car and I pipe up with that. You know, it's part of who you are, how you are, how you deal with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, find your way. When you find a way in which you can work with these issues within yourself, it really can be fun. I think that one of the primary fears that I have in getting older, as I've seen many people in my family, um, develop some form of cancer. And I was really drawn to that part of your book when you spoke about enduring two bouts with cancer and healing the first bout in a more holistic way through fasting and resting and the second in a more traditional Western approach with oncology. And I'm just wondering you know, it's it's one thing to have a positive philosophy about life and looking for the positive in things, but it's quite another to get uh, a diagnosis that's rather serious, like cancer. And I'm just curious if you were able to almost immediately view those as a lesson and something to work through, or if it was, in fact, scary for you and, and a difficult thing to endure. Oh, well, it was scary, but I understood that that I had a choice and that, that, that there were different ways in which I could work with this. It was my choice. The approach to this cancer process was so different by the time I was in my uh, 90s than it was when I was in my 30s. And to try and put myself back there into that was, would be digging up some stuff and pulling it out and I didn't need to because that there'd been research and all kinds of stuff that had brought it to a point where it could be treated in a different way. I mm -hmm. had to look at it in a way that I could, because of the way that I looked at it was making this little suitcase and, and doing a story for myself that allowed me to use my mind. So I was still using a holistic approach but I wasn't going to go back to the um, ways in which I worked with it because my life had changed. I was in a completely, completely different position. 
And there was no way I could put myself back there without just disrupting everything for myself and the people around me and all of that. Right. So if you're looking at your life as something that is an evolving process, you look for the things that are right about what's going on and mm-hmm. then do what's right for you at the time. Like I told my son, contact the physician within that patient and then you work with that connection because it's not the modality that does the healing. It's the love with which it's done that does the healing. Hmm. I have um, a friend who's a neurologist, a wonderful guy here, and he told me the other day that he was working with a resident. He's helped with the teaching uh, at the medical school. So, and they were going in to see a patient and when he came to the door of the patient, the resident was standing there, and uh, he said, well, let's go in. And she said, oh, we don't need to go in there. And he says, what do you mean we don't need to go in there? She says, oh, he has Alzheimer's. He can't hear anything. And my friend, the neurologist, said, no, 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 wait a minute. We have two patients in there. We have his wife and himself. We treat that this situation so that his wife can understand what needs to be done and take that love and help him as he can work with it in his own way. Mm-hmm. And we need to touch him. Mm-hmm. We need to go in and touch him. It was that she had learned in her training the importance of actually the greatest healer of all is love. He changed that for this uh, resident, and she'll never handle something like that again the way she was because she had been taught it. Yeah. And I know that when I was in medical school, it makes me take a deep breath when I think about how we treated birthing Mm -hmm. because everything was a war against disease, so we were... what. What we were taught was what was called twilight sleep. And I had my first two sons with this twilight sleep, which meant that we totally anesthetized the mother so she was completely unable to do anything to help with the birthing process. Mm -hmm. My sons were uh, 24 hours old before I knew I had sons. It was that yeah. deep, honestly. But we were taught to use forceps in order to deliver the patient. Now, I'm trying very hard not to say that I delivered babies. I did those. But now, when women are birthing babies, I'm giving the power back to the woman who is the only person who could really birth that baby. Mm-hmm. So we talk about birthing babies, not delivering babies. It's it's a whole concept of loving birth and reclaiming the power that we're the only people that can do this. Yeah. yeah. You know? And and no matter how old we are, we many of us, if we haven't been part of the process of, of helping birth babies, 
we have cousins and aunts and uncles and you know we have relatives that have are part of our community have been birthed because women were able to birth their babies maybe in in my day which i look back as <laughs> the the ancient times when i used forceps <laughs> and i was good at it i could deliver a after coming head of a birth of a of a a breech baby and do it all right but that's the only way we knew of doing it and and the theory, the the whole philosophy of medicine has not dynamically changed enough to understand that that really isn't what our job is our job yeah. is to help people heal in their own way. And they're the only ones who know how that is. And the problem is that we've told them they don't know nothing. They have to get it all out of the TV or, or, or a doctor's head or something. And yeah. they don't know that if they listen to themselves, pay attention to their dreams. You know, I have had said in my life, my dreams have been so important. I woke up one morning, and there was a, a like a huge crash. I heard this huge crash, and I woke up, and I was half in the dream and half out of the dream, and I saw myself <clears throat> standing in a valley in a valley in the high Himalayas, and on my right hand side there was a young woman just splayed out on the ground, barely breathing, and on the left hand side there was a huge man in armor laid out on the ground just barely breathing and the, and I'm looking at this situation and the words came to me these two forces have been fighting each other with like punching each other for eons and almost killing themselves it's time that they opened their fingers and got their fingers together and helped each other in the whole process of life, and wow. uh, and I woke up, and I, I thought, now look, the girl is on the right-hand side, that's the masculine side. The man is on the left-hand side, that's the feminine side. And so what these the voices say is really speaking to that reality. So I had a friend who's, She's really psychic, and I called her, talked about it. And she says, you know, I've been thinking about something. She says, there's the word manifest. We read, use that word all the time. We manifest something. Manifestation is important. It's really important. But she says, I'm thinking there's another term, that manifestation is like Jacob's ladder. You take one step, and you climb Jacob's ladder. She says, I think there's another term. It's called femifestation. And we as f women can take this way of, of evolving our whole process because we have a spiral. Yeah. And we can be up on the fifth rung of that spiral and know what's going on at the second rung. So if we use the femifestation as what it is that we're working with 
we can work together with the manifestation and be real about what we're doing. And as we were talking, I realized the girl was on the ma on the right side, which is the masculine side, and the man was on the left side, which was the feminine side. And we had been trying to get this fixed, and we don't know what we're working with. But if we put our fingers together and think about the interweaving, and, and here's the thing, too. Think about a pregnancy. A pregnancy is a total manifestation. Everything that we do during that pregnancy is manifesting, but the manifestation happens when that baby takes its first breath. If we can learn in our lifetime to take each thing as it comes to us as something from which we learn a lesson and we grow with it, the lesson becomes important, but the joy that comes with the understanding of what it is that we're doing is awesome. It's just mm -hmm. absolutely awesome. So I think it's it's reclaiming our true humanity. And I think our true humanity knows what what healing love is. Yeah. Yeah, I love that you are talking about this concept of love being healing, not just in an esoteric or spiritual way, but also having an impact on the physical level. There's the studies that they did, I'm sure you're, you've heard of, where they'll take a glass of water or some kind of Oh, some yeah. kind of matter and, you know, speak, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And then, you know, there's somebody else in another room caressing the, the water, you know, I love you, <laughs> precious little baby. Um, yeah. And that the actual molecules of the matter, the water, whatever it is, the changes. change. Yeah. Yeah, they change. Yeah. yeah, I know the people that did that. You know, when we started the American Holistic Medical Association, it took us two years to decide how to spell holistic hmm. because the word that we were looking was health and healing and holy. And so when we finally got that, we realized that the word we were, the, the holistic that we were talking about was started with an R, not H. Yeah, not an R. <laughs> as, as you think of the last... 50 years of your life, what would you say are the things that you have really enjoyed about getting older? What have been the best parts of the latter half so far of your life? Well, I, I can't say what's best. I think that a moment like this is the best that ever. I could, mm. could have never imagined this, you know. Yeah. I, I, my biggest stretch of imagination couldn't do this, but the absolute joy that I have of watching my grandbabies and my children do the things that they they came to do. My, it's like my son that's a psychologist. When he was three, he came in and he says to me, Mama, I know something. And I said, what's that, Bobby? He says, if I make a friend and he makes a friend and he makes a friend, it's going to go all around the world and come back to me. Of course, he's a psychologist, <laughs> you know. And then my second son, who's a retired Presbyterian minister and helping me 
with this because he's retired doing what he was doing then. He's seven years old, and he comes in, and he says to me, I wish Jesus was here. And I said, oh, well, I do too. Why do you? He says, because I have questions. And I said, well, try, try me. Maybe I can help. He says, you don't have the answer. I says, well, try me. Maybe I can. So he says, okay. How can God be if he never got started? <laughs> I said, oh. <laughs> That's a big one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, well, maybe it's like a circle. It doesn't have a beginning or an end. He says, I knew you didn't have the answer. <laughs> of course he's a mister, you know. <laughs> I mean, when, you wa when I've watched these grandkids, and amazing great-grandkids, little Maggie May, when she had her fifth birthday, she was, um, she gave everybody their job. Her, her, her father cleaned the house. Her mother baked the cake and, you know, and all this. She, so she had her whole birthday party outlined and it was wonderful. And they were sitting at the table and they'd eaten the cake. She'd had her presents and everything. And she got very sad. And the fam her mother said to her, Maggie Bay, what's wrong? She says, because I'm five now. I no, I I don't have any more fours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she had heard the business of aging when she was five years old. That she was she had left behind the fours, and she was sad. Yeah, and so the, the family worked with her, and her her father passed her the jelly or something at breakfast, and she says, "I'm humbly honored by your generosity." <laughs> and these baby, these little people that are coming up right now, not just mine, but I'm watching these little people who are coming in with amazing uh, opportunity. Now, um, abilities that if we're looking for what these kids are saying and we're working with them, if we mm -hmm. can focus back to our true humanity, I have this uh, concept, it's not a theology or anything, just an idea, that when God, whoever God, whatever he is for each one of us, created the earth, it was beautiful. And uh, he looked at it and said, oh, this is great. So then he created the human being. And he said to us humans, now you're the only beings on this universe, in this universe that have free choice and free will. I now give you dominion over this whole process. And we, in our arrogance, thought he said dominance. So we've kind of taken over and done the things that we've done to Mother Earth and to each other and so on. Mm -hmm. You know, we we misinterpreted what was said. I think he said dominion. And dominion means taking care of. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that reclaiming who we are. That's why E.T. was reaching for home. And so many of the people that I'm talking to now are reaching for that light 
that goes with the reality that we're here for a purpose. And if we look for that and do it with love and uh, awareness, well, it makes it worthwhile. I have five L's that I talk about. The first are life and love. Life without love can't even exist. It's a seed in the pyramid, 5,000 years, and it's only when the sunlight and, and water get to it that it can break its shell and become what's mm-hmm. been universal, the, the energy that's been there for universe, you know. Yeah. So those two belong together like a pregnancy. The third one is laughter. Laughter without love is cruel. It's, it's mean. It br- takes families mm-hmm. apart. It causes wars. But laughter with love is joy and happiness. The fourth one is labor. Labor without love is drudgery. You know, I got to go to work. Too many diapers, just too much. And we drag ourselves through it. But labor with love is bliss. It's what makes you do what you're doing. You know, it's that inner bliss that allows you to claim your true humanity. And the fifth one is listening. Listening without love is empty sound. If you can't hear what's being said, you can't understand because the reality of listening with love is understanding. So for me, these five L's kind of help put some of the concepts into focus because in the long run, life and love are the essence. Life has to keep moving. Love is the way in which it moves. I, for my uh, 102nd birthday, I rode in on a tricycle. And, you know, it's it's the ability to do some fun things like that. Why not? Yeah. I Well, I love and I'm totally floored by the idea of your 10-year plan. And I love that at 102, you're in the midst of another 10-year plan. And I'm just wondering if you can speak to this philosophy, where it came from, and how you why you find it so important uh, as a guiding principle of your life. And tell because, us what your 10-year plan is. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the and how can we plan. help? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> By living, you know, doing the things that you're doing. Yes. Actually, the 10-year plan includes the Village for Living Medicine. The thought that on this earth, there has to be not just one place, but places where life, the people that are living there, live the kind of life really makes their hearts sing. The minute you step onto this property, healing starts. And you know that the person down the road is there. You could greet them with I just found out a few years back that because my one son introduced me as coming, us as coming from a weird family, and the next speaker that spoke, she was Welsh. And she says, well, I want to tell you that in Wales, in the morning, when we meet each other, we don't say, how are you? We say, how's your weird? 
<laughs> so we each one have within us that weird aspect. And if we can look for that and do the things that we are, that make our hearts sing, aging becomes a wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm having a, just a really good time right now. <laughs> yeah, this, this idea of a 10-year plan is is very inspiring to me as well. Yeah. I'm going through a lot of life transition right now. And so I'm finding a lot of need to, to stay in the moment that I'm in, but also have something that is kind of drawing me forward Absolutely. and drawing me into something new. So I'm, I'm really taking that piece and, and running with that for sure. Can we um, maybe just ask you, I'd love to hear one final thing as we come to a close. And this is a piece that I think it, it motivates a lot of the fear that people have, whether they realize it or not, as they're getting older, is is how we feel about death. And I'm curious, as you are in this stage of life where we none of us know how much longer we will live. We don't know that if we're 30. We don't know that if we're 50. We certainly don't know that at any stage. But certainly the older we get, the more probability there is, I guess, that we may not have that much longer. So how, how do you feel about dying at this point? Uh <clears throat> I think of I think of it as I, like a dream <clears throat> that uh, there's a, a curtain that we walk through, and on the other side is this dream world or whatever you want to call it. However, that for me, I have experienced my parents' death with they died with such acceptance my sister my daughter i've i've gone through i miss them terribly but i don't grieve them because they lived the lives i glory the lives that they lived mm -hmm. i i'm excited by to talk about what they did during their lives because for me that's still alive and the thing is that we have cells that are dying every day within us. This whole business of, of uh, stem cells is an amazing concept. We're replacing cells all the time. And, and in a seven-year period of time, our body is completely different than it yeah. was seven years ago. So it's, <clears throat> there's nothing uh, unfamiliar to us as living human beings about death. It's just our concept of it that mm -hmm. is, you know, it's mysterious, but why should it be um, anything that is as scary? For me, it's a, uh, a process of just taking one more step and going through the curtain. And my sister when she was 98, she um, had been healthy, but she got the flu and didn't get over it. And so she was uh, unconscious and just ready to make the transition. Her youngest son and his wife were with her, and she started singing. She started singing hymns and bhajans, Indian hymns. And as she started, it was her voice was weak, but she sang for two hours, and her voice got stronger and stronger as she sang. 
And every so often she would stop and say, and Aya is here. And then she'd go back into it. And what well, that Aya is here, that to me was so important because our Aya, when we were growing up, was the woman who took care of us because my mother was a doctor and she was busy. And our Aya was this uh, woman who, who couldn't read or couldn't write, totally illiterate, but she was the epitome of love. And she t she tried to teach Margaret and me to play the drum, the Indian two-sided drum. And Margaret learned, but I couldn't sit still long enough. So in my view of Margaret's passage, Margaret and Aya are singing and drumming as they walk into heaven, whatever it is for them. So for me, it's a, a transition into another aspect of life, sort of like my mother realizing that she's a doctor treating an elephant. You know, it's that kind of a of a, uh, oh, idea that there's more to life than we thought there was. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. And it goes it gets on. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've had goosebumps multiple times and will probably cry after this. So. Yeah, I'm about to go have another ugly cry. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Gladys, that feels like a really beautiful place to end. Is there anything else you want to share with our audience before we um, wind down here? Don't forget that love is a great healer. No matter what the modality is that you're using for, yeah. for, for healing, do it with love. It's like the, mm. a mother's kissing her baby's boo-boo. It's just that kind of reaching out to help heal. Yeah. Yeah. It's so beautiful. It's amazing. Well, so we will share everything that we know you're up to, including your book. And is there anything specific you want to share about how people can find you and what kinds of things you're up to? Gladys McGarry. <laughs> what was that? It, Dot com. Dot com. My <laughs> echo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you, and John. We love, we love that your Instagram uh, name is BeGladMD. Yeah. So people can follow you there, too. Yeah, that's we, right. we find a lot of joy in following you there. It's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. We're Thank so, you so, much so honored time. and privileged. I'm, yeah. I'm so pleased with you two both. Yeah. And the, the, the whole audience. What a, what a love fest we've had this morning. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. And I think exactly. my favorite word I learned is femista femistation? Femistation. Yeah, femifest. 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 I'm use that all yeah. the time. Isn't that a great word? It's so good. Thank you, Dr. Gladys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to This Is Aging. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share with others and leave a rating and review for us in iTunes or Spotify. You can also subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on all the social platforms at This Is Aging. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Please note the information shared in this episode is for educational purposes only and should not be considered a substitute for professional medical advice or consultation with a healthcare professional. In this episode, we may share links and references to products and services that may enable us to receive compensation from referrals or sales. This Is Aging only recommends products and services that we use.